0: Welcome to the April edition of the Planning Exchange podcast and thanks to all of you who've downloaded our podcast so far. For a complete list of our podcasts and speakers today, please visit our website at www.planningexchange.org where you can find more information about our speakers and information about any upcoming podcasts. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Our guest speaker today is Cameron Alderson from Canopy Homes on the topic of housing trends and affordability. Cam, can you just give a quick in- overview of your experience?
1: Sure. Um, I studied building at RMIT, finished that late early 90s. Did Then I went and worked for a pri- private uh, project management company called PPM. Back in the days where there were no cranes in the sky and we were all doing fit outs and shopping centres. Finally got a job that had a crane and it was an apartment job on Beaconsfield Parade and one thing led to another and I was asked to go and join Mervac in 1997, so I worked with Kevin Hunt there for four years, and had a fantastic experience uh, during those years, and then I was uh, asked to go over to uh, Stockland as their general manager, as a youngster, I was only 29, and that was a challenging experience, Um, was there for seven years and then left, and joined forces with Andy Evans, my partner today, Uh, at Red Sea, and we started a business at the same time, so that's back in 2008, called Canopy Homes, and that was our business focused on smaller housing. Mm
2: -hmm. And Cam, we're all shaped by our experiences. What are the most significant experiences that have shaped you?
1: I'd say uh, some family members. So mum's a music teacher, so she's a bit left brain, in fact not a bit, a lot, (laughs) Um, they all are. <laughs> totally. And Dad's a civil engineer by training, so he's the right brain. So I think I've always had a bit of able to shift from one side to the other, if you like, in left brain, right brain thinking. I've always had a real interest in architecture. And it was my uncle, who's a builder, he had some plans on a table, uh, and I was only about 13, and he, I said, what are these? And he said, oh, they're plans of the house that I'm going to build. I said, who does those? And he said, a draftsman. I said, what's a draftsman? And he said, an architect. And I thought I wanted to be an architect, um, but I went to a, a lecture in the architectural lecture at Melbourne Uni said, only 10% of you will make any money. And I thought, that's no good. Mm. Um, so that's really it. So um, are
0: you musical then?
1: Yeah, I play guitar. Ah, yeah, I play guitar and um, we've got a piano, but I'm not very good at it. And uh, so finishing off on experiences, probably in my career, the biggest influence, uh, probably topical for what we're going to talk about today is I I got asked at Stockland my last six months there to write a a housing affordability strategy. And it sent me around the world and I had a team of people, three people uh, allocated to me to, to really study the topic in depth. And I didn't have to worry about anything else other than think about that issue for six months. And funnily enough, the only thing I really well it all came down to a smaller house for me mm. in that study mm.
0: so canopy homes um what's the what's the difference with canopy homes is it affordable housing is it smaller housing what's the background to that
1: it's it's a smaller house um, but highly specified mm-hmm. uh, I suppose if you think about it it's if you, it's like Apartment design thinking in a house, so a three-bedroom house in one hundred and twenty square meters is like one of our most typical homes that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, the the, um, the projects we do vary from you know, eight homes to one hundred and twenty, but generally around forty in each project. So it's like a precinct or a little small neighbourhood, and the principle of it is that the homes can sell for less than the average house price in the area. So I ultimately call it a relative affordability. It's not an absolute affordability, it's a relative affordability. We did one project in Sandringham, which is the street we were in, the house price average was more like one and a half million, if not more, and we averaged a million. Mm -hmm. So it was a relatively affordable offering for that street. we did a project in Footscray, West Footscray, and the house price in the area was 600 and we sold for $500. Mm-hmm.
2: Cam, before we went on here, you mentioned that you actually lived in one of your projects in Sandringham. I did. And what what did you pick up as a user oh. that you didn't realise?
1: It's all, A lot of it's in the detail, and, I, and it was a great experience. Um, I mean, in the detail to quality, things like... Joinery and space planning for joinery, and not letting design get in the way of functionality in terms of critical things like have I got enough space to store things? Mm. So it's got to look good, but it's also got to serve its function and give you enough space. So we made mistakes when you live in it, you pick up the mistakes you made. And uh, certainly, rammed home by my now wife Tanya, going, That's not very good, You've done something <laughs> different thinking? there. But, look, overall, there's lessons learnt, you know, lots of lessons learnt in the detail.
2: Is this a Japanese sort of influence in design, it, small spaces?
1: It, yeah, it is. Um, you know, we... we I, that study I did, we did look at stuff in Japan. It's sort of 1997, 1998. Sorry, 2007, 2008, when we looked over there. We saw some amazing things in Japan, around customisation, which we might talk about a bit later, but, yeah, space and space planning and being efficient in the space you provide, not having wasted space. So coming back to the living experience, if I could have had that house in another area that we want to live in, um, Sandringham wasn't for us, I would choose that. I, I, I would much rather a smaller house over a big, rambling house which has just got space to fill stuff with that just clutters your life.
0: So what's been your favourite project that canopy Homes have developed?
1: I'd have to say it's the first one yeah. um, so far. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, was that Sandringham?
1: No, that was Westfoots Gray, Low oh, Street, okay. Westfoots Gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, 43 mm-hmm. houses. It won the State UDIA Award for Best Medium Density at the Project at, in 2000 and so oh, What would it have been? Eight or something, nine, something like that. Um, and I suppose it's my favourite because I still get invited over. If I go over, if I go around there and see someone who we sold to, they'll invite me in, and mm. you know, to me that's like the ultimate test. You know, it's probably two types of developers. Someone would argue: there's a guy who sells and settles it and hands you the keys and runs. Mm. And then there's the one who actually opens the door and, and walks them through the house at handover. And that's more our approach. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't do it every time, but that's the philosophy.
0: And are you happy with how those um, housing products have aged over time?
1: Yeah, I've, I am. I mean, the, land's, the, the the name Canopy Homes is about ultimately not about the house, it's about mm. the street. We actually want to have a canopy you know, feeling in the street, supported by good quality housing in the backdrop. Um, so the landscape there is fantastic. But then you always get, you know, the occasional renter who the landlord's not maintaining in a weed explosion. That always bugs you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can't control everything. And mm-hmm. it, it does stand up really well. The neighbours uh, seem to have more contact with each other than uh, as it... a result of our designs. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it seems to be a good community.
2: What sort of housing demand trends are you seeing at the moment?
1: Well... It's it's in the niche that we operate in. It, I, I'm not saying it's the main, but it's a trade of space for amenity. Um, it's the reverse of the McMansion movement. We we believed from the study that I did um, and said, look, we can build half the size of the house, sit on half the size of land, it'll cost less. Yeah, you know, that's that's going to be the right direction to keep a lid on prices going through the roof we don't need these massive houses on big blocks of land we seem to have done smaller blocks of land but the houses are still where possible maxed out to the boundaries Mm -hmm. we've taken the approach of having a much smaller house it's on a smaller um, block of land and this is the trade-off that you start to learn with people you know they want to live in an area where they either grew up or they've got family connections, but they've been priced out unless they live in an apartment and they're getting at a point where, depending on which market we're in, but say it's a a market with about $600,000 spend, they're generally saying, I haven't got $600,000, I've got $500,000 I can afford a two-bed apartment, but it's not going to meet my needs. I've got no kids or one kid or two kids, either now or on the horizon, and I want to have enough space to start that early planning of a family. An apartment's not going to do it. A two-bed apartment doesn't do it for them. So what are their choices? At the moment, they can move further out effectively, move out of the area they want to be in until... More, you know, where we've been offering something that keeps them in the area offers them something different. So there are compromises they're dealing with. Okay, I've got 120 square meters of space, not 180 with two living rooms and massive corridors and a cinema.
0: You've um, the four-metre-wide entranceway.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, you know, just you know, don't have oversized en-suites and bathrooms and make it efficient and space-friendly, open-plan, flexible, adaptable, and then as a result, hit a price point that means they can get the type of living they want in an area that they want. That's been our model.
2: And with planning policy, uh, is it facilitating innovation in, in housing product delivery, do you think? What, what, what can we see? What would you like to see different?
1: Um,
2: this is going across the country, remember, yeah, just Victoria?
1: Yes. Look, we've always found that you can innovate within the rules that you've got wherever you are, um, and and so usually planning policy doesn't prevent innovations per se. You can, if it, it, it is actually the innovation that is the thing that you're doing around the rules, within the rules that no one else has tried, that it equals innovation. But occasionally you get planning policy change that uh, blanket um
2: constrained supply or
1: well just eliminates I'll give you a good example. The the the, the Sandringham project that we lived in is eight houses in Heath Street Sandringham on two blocks. That project um is very well regarded by the people who live in it and the we got off it's in Bayside. We got the approval in 14 weeks including Christmas um, and clearance from VCAT, no objections. Two stories met all of the setback requirements, all of the hike requirements, all the parking requirements, and was considered to be a fit to the neighbourhood character. 14-week approval. Can't do it today. It's prohibited. You just can't do prohibited it. Prohibited because it's only allowed to be two on a block and we effectively did four on a block for two blocks for mm. a total of eight. Prohibited. Yet the market down there was an empty-nester market selling the $1.5, $1.8 million big house, big maintenance obligation wanting to pocket some money for their retirement and move into a low-maintenance smaller house. That's who we sold to. Mm -hmm. They can't do that in Sandringham for about 88% of the area under the new changes in Melbourne policy that they've adopted, which, you know, that can eliminate policy, can eliminate what we think is good innovation and a market response. doesn't mean they can't come up with something else and, you know, we're racking our brain trying to figure out what that is for those areas and then we still can apply our model into other areas and we just move our current model into the other areas and then sit back and think what we can do and where it's been carved out. It's a bit of a shame in Melbourne, but I don't think the other states have gone down that path and they should actually come down here and look at what not to do.
0: So how do we add more grit to the policy framework?
1: Grit. To
2: bring it it closer, to align it closer to... What's happening out in the market? What people mm-hmm. want? What
1: people want. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> I'm not a planner. Um, however, I think I don't know. I mean, in, in layman's, I feel like we've got enough rules now around heights and setbacks and um, car parking. You know, that if you want to look at the absolute key drivers to amenity, you tick those three boxes. Those rules are pretty much set, and yet we still have massive debate around the, if you like, the function of new projects, and little debate about the form. I now character becomes, and then and but you know character is about form. So where am I going with this? Because you did ask me this in advance, and I've given it a bit of thought. I'm wondering whether we could try a. T- We've evolved enough in our rules that are in place to go to 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 a, a new regime where if you are functionally in accordance with the rules, heights, setbacks, cars, things like that, you have, as of right approval, subject to a design review panel and then each council or municipality or region has a design review panel that you go to automatically because you've ticked the functional boxes, but we want to elevate the debate on form and design. So if we want a better outcome, we should actually spend more time talking about design mm. and less on height setbacks and all of that. You know? so And then we can, as a, as, a, as, a, as a city or a country, start to become experts on design and have an informed debate about neighbourhood character and invest our resources in those debates. And I reckon as a result we get much better streets...
2: Uh, Cam, builders typically build what they've built before. That's a, a, a criticism. It's, it's easier and more cost-effective. How do we address that? <laughs> and I, I can understand why builders do that mm-hmm. because it's been successful what they've moved before. But
1: mm. uh, Well, I, I've had quite a lot of experience with different types of builders in my career, bought commercial, high-rise builders. But if we're talking in a housing context... Uh, the volume builder um, is probably worth commenting on to respond to that question. If they are like, i describe them as mobile manufacturing units. You know, Think about a manufacturer. If you want to change and they're running 24-7, 365 days a year and you've got this production facility and all of a sudden you say to them, well, that product you're producing, we want to change it or we want a different way of doing it. They've got a Keep producing and change at the same time. It's very hard to do. So, you know, then their man management expertise are really highly refined. So, change without absolute certainty it's going to help them, they resist. And it's understandable that they would. But, things, for instance, that we watch and are monitoring uh, modern methods of construction. Panelised wall systems, um, prefabricated flooring systems, uh, those initiatives I think will eventually see those sort of elemental prefabrication components come into the construction of the cottage industry, but they're not there yet, mainly because their raw cost versus the way they do it at the moment still doesn't doesn't match. So there's no advantage in changing the system yet.
2: In in terms of those new systems, how does energy usage or mm-hmm. over the life of a building, does that come into your considerations when you're at the design stage? Or do you just have to hit the six Look, stars? To, we,
1: we we focus on you've got to get to six stars, okay. but it's an interesting area of discussion. I mean, the way the black box is set up to get to six stars is interesting. It's a fact that it's... Uh, ..in the black box system we have, a slab on ground is a better performance than a uh, pillar, bearer post floor system. Yet the bearer post floor system would have less embedded energy than the slab on the ground. But we see very little bearer and post floor systems because of the six-star energy black box. Um, It's... it's, So it's output rather than input? It is a bit. Um, Now... I'm not an environmental expert on star ratings. However, it's a shame that the system won't... Uh, you get penalised for you know, a lower embedded energy system and therefore it doesn't get used um, very often.
0: Do you think we're accommodating um, good forms of modern manufacturing in Australia or is that something that we can improve on?
1: Um, as I've sort of touched on before, I think it's a watch this space. Mm-hmm. It'll emerge slowly yes. as definite advantages seen commercially by these large players. They'll, they'll change their systems to take advantage of that, but it's not necessarily there now. The one example that always sticks in my mind is it was a, I've got this photo that we, we had from Japan, and there's a slab on the ground that says 0900. And there's a slab on the ground, and there's three more photos, and the fourth photo is 1600. 4pm, and there's a house there. There's a slab, and then there's a house. And cool. it's delivered in a day, and it was a customised house. It was not a prefab. It came in elementally and was assembled in a day. Mm. And it was done by Toyota Homes. Oh, wow. Because
0: mm. I remember a few years ago, I mean, um, this idea of uh, um, shipping shipping container housing was yeah. really big, and it seems to have fallen off the radar a little bit in recent times. Yeah, it did. You know, there was a lot of really innovative... Building and some so, of yeah, my favourite
1: sort of funky houses and, you know, coastal houses and country houses are dressed up containers. You know, yeah. they're small, they're efficient spaces and they just look spectacular when mm-hmm. done well. Um, but in a... You know, I've not had the guts to go into council and say, we want to do 42 containers on mm. this site. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's it's at the moment it's at a very discretionary um, architectural level mm-hmm. and you know I think that's to be encouraged and, and, and applauded and celebrated because eventually those sort of things start to hit the mainstream Yeah, definitely.
2: Cam in terms of you scale levels of affordability can you explain that concept of uh, scales of affordability
1: um the, yes um I guess when doing that study many years ago, now we, there's there's public housing, key worker housing, then there's private market housing, but then there's scales within private market housing. So at the lower end of private market housing, closer to key worker housing, I just call that the relative affordable area. So it's certainly not, you know, it could be five hundred thousand in a six hundred thousand dollar area. Um, so to me, it's just, it, it, it probably, I mean, I, I did a little pyramid chart to sort of segment the Australian housing market and it was about purchasing power, um, household incomes, expenses versus you, you, how many kids you've got and interest rates and what's your purchasing power. And then there's a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid is people with heaps of money, the majority of people sitting in the the, the bottom of the end of the market. So yeah, it's it's about purchasing power, and there's bigger numbers in the lower end than there are in the upper end. In reality, um, I, I think just to finish on that point, we look at a lot of percentile figures in suburbs. So the median's the 50th percentile. We try and offer our houses at the 30th percentile, which in layman's is like 10% cheaper than the average house.
0: There's been a lot of talk recently about reinventing the suburbs. What do you think are the priorities to make them more livable?
2: You're not going to say bike, more bike lanes, eh? <laughs> more public transport. We all know that, can we? We want something different. I
1: know. I mean, it, look, it, it would change this. Most of our cities are sort of the spoken wheel network, isn't it? And it's that crosstown public transport connection that would dramatically change where people can work, where people can get access to shops. You know, if you had more cross-town public transport access, I mean, in our lifetime, will we see a tram or something down Bell Street, you know, across the top Mm -hmm. of town? Probably. Would that change things dramatically to the composition of jobs and shopping and Entertainment and living as a result, and the density of living around Bell Street in the future—absolutely. But we've everyone's had that debate, and you know, there's a great report written by Kim Dovey and I think it's Shane Murray called "Intensifying Melbourne," and they went into it in depth. And I think they're right on with that direction. But I'd, I'd like to see us think more about the the concept of population density and saying, well, where now, forgetting what may or may not happen with transport, where now is there access to shops or parks or transport? And what are the density graduations we've got going away from that? So we seem to have a two-tiered... Well, certainly politicians and the community have a two-tiered opinion of what housing options there are. There's the traditional house and there's apartments. And not enough... uh, uh, I guess understanding exists around the graduations in between those two which is a lot about what we're doing mm. with Canopy Homes but population densities of people per hectare that we produce is, can range between 80 he- uh, people per hectare to about 160 people per hectare. That's what we've been that's our band. So somewhere. it's the middle
2: space The middle It's space. the middle space. That's it. Most
1: of Melbourne sub 40 people per hectare mm. but we've got very intensive areas which could be 250 people per hectare or more mm. if you get into the city but maybe if we have okay well population densities what are the different products that fit that and we can have a better sort of visual picture of different options uh, uh, to me that could ultimately give a, a, a richer city and a richer streets and better connected neighborhoods and
2: yeah, Cam. The the health benefits of being near public parks are well known. Green spaces. Yeah. Can't we, for example, have higher densities around public parks? You know, not just the tram routes or train routes, but you know, look at things differently and the the total wellbeing. Absolutely. You know, high densities near parks. Why not?
1: I, I talk, and what's high density as well? So, but yes, in the density gradient discussion, if there's a park, there should be a higher acceptance of people per hectare near a park now we can do 100 and, what did I say 60 people per hectare in a mix of two and three story homes not four or more but up to three
2: is, is this more fl- more flexibility in planning policy that it we're is, talking about it is recognizing that there's other things where density can be greater
1: correct and it just density doesn't have to be height I mean, someone in America described out what we were doing with our product to me as high density low-rise family housing and in a practical description that's what we do mm. um, does it open up different opportunities to you know, put a, you know, locate people in Melbourne or Sydney or yes it does um, in my view.
0: So you mentioned earlier about the study tour that you did with Stockland. Um, do you think that was a valuable experience?
1: It was huge. Yeah, it sounds um, like it
0: really shaped your career.
1: I did a sense. few, I did a, two studies. I did one on uh, with James Hardy. They took us through uh, Mid-South, well, we we Dallas-Fort Worth, Atlanta, Memphis, Charleston, Pasadena, back in LA, down to Florida, Seaside. We saw some amazing things um, and projects. Some would call it new urbanist. Um, I just call it really, you know, some of the things we saw were just outstanding. Um, really, really good quality communities. Um, we yeah. also saw the bad though. So we didn't just see great stuff. Mm-hmm. We saw next door to the great stuff or up the street another project that was just done in the traditional manner. Mm-hmm. And it was just, a real eye opener of well, what could we learn from that and adapt adapt here? And
2: mm. so, Cam, do you think our listeners could do with that sort of just stepping back from what they do and just doing a bit of study or a bit of a tour or just I taking
1: think, time out? I think we all can. You know, we all get. You know, I'm as guilty as anybody. You just get
0: uh, in a rush. Yeah,
1: well, in, in a in rut, I was going to say that you just Education. get you, yeah. you get you're just so busy. You're not yeah. seeing the wood from the trees and.
0: And you're so used to a certain type of housing or a certain way Correct. of doing things. Correct. And that's what you yeah. think
1: is it possible. But if someone can take you somewhere to see what else can be done, mm. it just totally expands your horizons on what might be possible. You can't literally sort of pick that up and drop it here because, you know, but you can, the, the, the bones of it or the fundamentals, you can take the key bits and adapt it to our architectural aesthetic. And, and our culture, but you can... Little things, like, like we, we do... Our houses are deliberately as close to the street as we can get them while still having a little front yard, so mm-hmm. it's a dense planting zone, but we put a front porch, which is a few steps raised, and a seat on the front porch. And, and go to Lake Street, West Grey, and on a sun, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, you'll get the person sitting out the front, with or without a cigarette, reading the mm-hmm. paper and a cup of coffee... And the windows slides open from that porch seat and the kitchen's there looking out onto the street. Neighbours are going past, you're saying hello more often, you're bringing the living to the front of the house, not just going in, and there's no front fence. Mm. Whereas our neighbourhood character, which we aspire to keep, is a 1,800, nine-foot fence that you drive behind, lock the security gates behind you, and you never see anybody. Um, it's very isolating as a, as, as a, as a result. But that was the old housing model, though, that was foisted on communities. Well, maybe, but if you go and, you know, I see it today. I mean, next to our He Street project, someone's down, bought a big block next to it and is doing two homes and the, f- the first thing we're going to do is put up the nine-foot fence. And we said, well, we don't think we've got a picket fence next to you. And so in there's twenty-two houses in this street and sixteen of them are a low height picket fence. Why are you doing a nine foot fence? That's out of character. You shouldn't be doing it. Mm. But people there is definitely a sense of security that those nine foot fences are meant to give you. But I argue that all it means is the bloke who's gonna rob you can jump the fence and no one can see you jump the fence and doing do it. That. Exactly. And it just to me that really impacts streets dramatically. Those little things. And and when you see them done well other ways, it can be a real eye-opener. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Cam, how do you measure success? and What gives you joy in a professional sense?
1: Measure success is still being in business. Mm. Um, not necessarily going broke, but still having projects to do. And that's not that easy always to get to because it's not always logical to buy another site. Um, at the moment, it's a very, very hot development market for new sites and we're not seeing the opportunity to deliver our model where we can offer somebody a relatively have high- affordable housing choice. So we're thinking we've got to think another way and dream up another way to make it work. So success is continuing to do what we'd love to do. But the the joy is, as well, I said before, um seeing someone who's living in the house you've really blood, sweat and tears have gone into delivering it find the design we do a lot of repeat design after improvements and they're happy to invite you in and have a cup of coffee and tell you a bit about what they've experienced but that's the joy um i I get a heap out of that it's the most satisfying part
0: and besides podcasts where do you find new sources of ideas
1: i think like everybody i read a lot Mm -hmm. um i read widely i just general interest in reading stuff fiction non-fiction um autobiographies, you know, people who have done amazing things, Mm -hmm. history. Um, Any
0: regular publications that you'd recommend?
1: Oh, look, as a publication, I always love wallpaper as a magazine. Mm -hmm. I just think, you know, just as a visual inspiration of the latest in trends, colour, technology or whatever, Um, fashion, you know, wallpaper I I love. But travel, obviously, getting out of your own, you know... my, one, my, Kevin Hunt, I mentioned I worked for him for a number of years, and he's a crazy, crazy fella. But he is quite brilliant in a property sense. Um, he used to say, don't go to work the same way twice. <laughs> 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 Drive a different road. Go a different way. Don't get in a rut going the same way. Go and see something else on the way to work every day. Or go home a different way. And um, I mean, I was a career bike rider when I was studying and... and yeah, you know, I love getting in the. You know, I'll drive down a lane. Yeah, you know, town loves it too. We'll be driving around the streets and see a lane. We'll just drive down that lane.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then it's a dead end. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, Cam developers have a bad have a bad re- reputation, right? And is it time that we we rebranded developers as producers or housing makers or creators? Your thoughts? How, how do we artists? Artisans, yeah, artists, (laughs) something that...
1: Well, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Um, I mean, I've been a developer. I remember my first development when I was 15 when I converted the garage that Dad had his tools in into my bungalow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I feel like I've been one forever, but whenever you tell somebody what you are, you say, I'm a developer. (laughs) (laughs) I an innovator. I mean, you know, what's... Look, the thing is that... In our industry, there is good and bad. So it doesn't matter what you call yourself. The next thing you call yourself, the bad guy will call himself that as well, and so that'll be a bad name. So, uh, <laughs> how do you separate yourself from the ruck in terms of what you are? I don't really know, but I, I, I'm not a big LinkedIn fan, but I, you know, it tells you what you are or what. And I, I, I think of myself as a designer developer. Mm. That I don't know if that it's not a great brand or anything, but Design, such a fundamental thing of what our everyday activity is about, in terms of the product. You know, yes, there's the figures and the banking and the valuations and the sales and everything that goes to make it happen, is so, a big part of so it. So you didn't
2: turn out to be an architect, but you still, yeah, you've still got that design, yeah, the
1: left and
0: right brain. And, I mean.
1: and to me, that's what separates us from when it's done badly. Now, there's plenty of developers who. Are of the same approach as us, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know what we get to call that segment of our industry, but there's then there's the ones that are just not like that at all.
0: I'm going to refer to you as the creator from now on.
1: That's <laughs> a bit much. <laughs> Is there any um,
0: last ideas you'd like our listeners to think about? Uh,
1: declutter your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done it. I had a big house. It um, was in Camberwell and more bedrooms than we needed, more space than we needed. And guess what? We just filled it up with stuff. Mm. So I don't do that anymore. Um, having had the experience of being in a smaller space, I like to have a 12-month rule. It's actually Tan got me under this. 12-month rule. Do it with your clothes. Mm-hmm. Do, it with your, do it with everything in your house. If you haven't used it for 12 months, if you've got a dining room and you haven't had a Dinner at it for 12 months, rethink what you're doing. Mm. Get, rid of, Get um, rid of it. You don't need it. And, mm. the, and the sense of freedom of decluttering your life is dramatic. And we've I've seen it personally, and I've seen it with especially that Heath Street project where mainly empty nesters moved in, petrified about how they're going to fit into this mm-hmm. thing, gonna sell a big house, don't know how I'm gonna do it. They ended up all selling all their furniture, buying brand new furniture, getting rid of so much stuff. And I go and see them today. Now, John and Gillian are so in, who it's in their late 70s. And they are so happy um, for getting rid of all the stuff they had. There's a lot of emotion there, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of family heirlooms. They got rid of it all. Mm. And they're very, very happy people feel free. That's <laughs> so maybe you declutter your life. Mm, it's that's good. A good-
0: good way to conclude i think um i think the more i think about it i think you should almost set up a bit of a tour of some of your developments for people to have a look at
1: we'd love to do mm. that
0: yeah It'd be a great great thing to see mm. i personally haven't seen any of them yet but mm. i intend to go and see a couple of yeah. them now particularly that puts gray one
1: yeah we'd love, mm. to, love to do that mm.
0: well thanks so much for joining us today cam just to wrap up Thanks again to all of you who've tuned into this podcast. We hope Cam has inspired you and given you the comfort that perhaps there are some affordable living options out there that we're not all doomed when it comes to buying property. We just need to be smarter and more accepting of new ideas in design and construction. Just a quick reminder to our listeners to also check out our website, www.planningexchange.org, where you'll find further information on the PX podcast series and information about past and future guests.
2: Relax your body.
1: What makes you the exception?
0: To get ready to fly. The
1: history of the future.
0: With the wideband circuits,
1: break it down into thousand bit packets, and a message will go back, such as this, all over the world. Rewriting, recreating the same old programs to over and oh, over. For example, to be simple, bulky, and heavy, wideband transmission facilities. There is some resistance to the
0: changes.